I, I have to admit, maybe this is a little bit sad, but I actually almost tear up a little bit more when I hear the Star Wars music than even when I hear my own national anthem. Now, I got to give you a little bit of background to this. When Star Wars came out, I was four years old. When The Empire Strikes Back came out, I was seven. And when The Return of the Jedi came out, I was 10 years old. So I grew up with this story. Anybody that's around my age totally relates to this. Star Wars was the first epic adventure that I ever lived into. I fought stormtroopers. I learned to use a lightsaber, as you saw me use a bit earlier. I had a crush on Princess Leia, especially in Return of the Jedi, but we won't go there. Um, I flew with Luke Skywalker. No, I was Luke Skywalker. But then I figured out that Princess Leia was my sister, and that was just weird. I, it was a cosmic battle of good against evil that despite all the odds, good wins. Though small, think Yoda. Though unassuming, the planet of Tatooine. Unorthodox, Han Solo. And even goofy, R2-D2 and C-3PO. Through all of these unassuming ways, good wins against the Imperial Empire. It was this story that I was a part of growing up as a kid. It was a story that shaped me forever. And we're all shaped by stories. It's what makes us human. It's why humans have history. We have stories. Try reading cow history. Boring. Very boring. Did you know that 5,000 years ago, cows were doing this exact same things that cows are doing today? It's not very interesting. Cows don't paint anything. Cows don't build things. Cows don't produce poetry. And despite what the far side may have you believe, cows have no history. They have no stories to tell. What makes us human is the fact that we have stories and that we're part of a story. We're embraced by stories. Think of the millions who have been shaped by the story of the boy wizard Harry Potter who laid down his life for his friends because of love, but because of love was raised up again to come back from the dead and defeat Voldemort, the arch enemy of the wizarding world. Interesting that the theme sounds quite familiar. All of our mythologies are based on stories. For generations, elders have passed on their beliefs and their customs and their values to the young by telling stories. Often it happened around a campfire. Or there would be the traveling minstrels of the Middle Ages that went around from tavern to tavern and people would beg them to play a story. Tell a story. Tell us a story. It's why the stories of Homer's Odyssey have shaped civilizations and cultures much more than the philosophical reflections of Plato's Republic. Because we embrace stories because narrative is part of what makes us human. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that the Bible is ultimately a story. Unfortunately, because of the way that the Bible has been approached over the last few generations, motivated by science and by rationalism, 
and by individualism, the fact that the, story, the Bible is ultimately a story does come as a surprise to many people. Of course, no one would deny that in the Bible it contains little stories, but a lot of times they're approached as little more than morality tales to give us a life lesson. But the idea that the Bible is a grand story is something that a lot of people have missed in the last few generations. Overall, the Bible's been treated more like a reference manual, like a dictionary. You pull off the shelf and you, you look up a certain word or you look up a certain verse, like a law book or a book of doctrines or maybe even an end times playbook in which you have to decode everything to sort of figure out how it's all going to end. It's been approached in almost every way rather than an epic story, which is what the Bible ultimately is. Uh, maybe you were told something like this. God made everything, and then God put these two humans, Adam and Eve, in a garden and told them not to do something. Adam and Eve then disobeyed God, did it anyway. God got mad at them, kicked them out of the garden and punished them and punished all of his children. But then Jesus comes along and God decided to punish Jesus instead of Adam and Eve and Jesus then died. It took the punishment for Adam and Eve and for all of Adam and Eve's children. So now that if we accept Jesus, we can go to heaven when we die. Maybe that's what you've heard, that's what you've been told, but I remember even quite young as I was told this that I looked at the Bible and it got me thinking, why then is the Bible 1,500 pages long if that's all there is to it? And, and, and the, the Adam and Eve stuff stops in Genesis chapter 3 and then all of a sudden this Jesus stuff starts up in Matthew. What about everything in between? Does it even matter? Why is there 66 different books? Why was this written over a period of 1,500 years? What about all this other stuff? And sadly, a lot of people, even Christians, don't know. It seems almost irrelevant. I think one of the, the healthiest things that has happened in the last 10, 15 years in the church globally has been a desire to reclaim the story of Scripture. There's not one organization doing this. Uh, we find it over and over again from so many different ways, which to me just speaks of a movement of the Holy Spirit. Trying to bring us back to the story of Scripture. And so nowadays we're finding everything from Bibles being released with the added verses and numbers and columns being removed. Because that wasn't there in the original. And with all those numbers and columns and stuff, it moves us to, again, thinking of it as a reference manual. And so numbers of Bibles have been uh, produced now that takes all that out of there so you can read it just like you'd read any other novel. And it then starts to read once again like a story. Then there's the Bible Project video series, which is one of the best video series on YouTube. I would just encourage you, the videos are usually about five to ten minutes long, and there are just dozens and dozens of them that take you through the story of the Bible, showing you how all of this holds together. There's also the children's Bible, like the Bible storybook, or the storybook Bible. The storybook Bible doesn't just tell isolated 
stories from the Bible, it shows how all of the stories fit together into one grand story. In fact, I've talked to many adults who have read the storybook Bible that said that that children's Bible has revolutionized the way that they read scripture because it shows how all of the stories are one story and how they all link together. This is a strong, corrective, I would even say reformational movement in the church today that's calling churches back to the grand biblical story and helping us begin to start to read big, read in light of the story. Interesting, as I was putting this message together, I read online this week an interview with Phil Vischer. Some of you may know Phil Vischer as the creator of VeggieTales. He is, was interviewed this week because he is putting out a new 18-episode VeggieTales series that plans to take things deeper. Veggies are going to take things deeper. That's great. In the interview, he says these words. He says, we haven't explained to kids how they are part of a bigger story. The gospel has been turned so often into tips for a better marriage. Or tips to get through college without becoming an atheist. And so kids are running to the Avengers. They want to be part of a big story. You see, it's so much easier to teach morality. It's so much easier to just tell a Bible story, pull a moral out of it, and then end with some Bible verse somewhere. But if you stop there, you are never actually getting to the message that leads to regeneration, that leads to new life, that leads to the fruit of the Spirit. And that is the core of the gospel. Let's tell the big story of the Bible and get kids excited about it again. And then he goes on to say, when I was 25 and working on the original VeggieTales series, I approached the biblical stories in a simplistic way. But now that I'm a 50-year-old with more maturity in my understanding of faith, I am now telling the stories differently in light of the big story. There's a wonderful things that are, are said in that interview. Um, one of the things I appreciate, too, is just his showing of his growing maturity. That, that the faith that I had at 25 is not the faith that I had now at 50. And that's the way it should be. We shouldn't have the same kind of simplistic understanding of a 25-year-old of the biblical stories as now Phil Vischer does when he is 50. He's showing himself to be a lifelong learner. But the other thing I appreciate about what Phil Vischer says is he doesn't say that, however, those more superficial understanding of the stories, it's fine to tell it that way because it's just kids that we're talking to. In fact, what Phil Vischer says, now that I have a deeper understanding of my faith, I want to go back and teach kids the deeper understanding of the faith, certainly in kid-friendly ways. But I want them to understand the deeper implications of the faith, the big story. And so that is what he's planning to do. Uh, he's also done a video series that's in our library called, called Buck Denver. Um, and it just takes you through the Bible as well. Some great material. Um, for even adults to watch through some of those series. Unless we understand this God-created need in people for story, the next section of Acts that we're going to get into will make no sense to anybody. See, we're in Acts chapter 6 right now, and persecution of the church begins to take place. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, we read of a man named Stephen... A man who is described as full of God's grace and power, 
performing amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, it roused the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witness said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple. And against the laws of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations against you true? And then... Guess what happens? Chapter 7, one of the longest chapters in the entire book of Acts, Stephen's defense is one long story, Israel's story. It, it, It didn't take long after the church started for it to become the target of persecution. And their first persecutors were those of the Jewish faith. You see, the reason was not because these people thought that a new religion had sprung up. In the Roman world, there were religions all over the place. Kind of like our world today, they had a plethora of religions. You could pick and choose, and you could even pick and choose parts of different religions and even make up your own. Religions were everywhere. If what Stephen was advocating was a new religion, the Jews would have just scoffed at it like they did every other religion, but they pretty much would have just left it alone. No big deal, just one other religion. But it wasn't that it was coming across as another religion. See, the church didn't see itself that way. They believed, the church, that they were simply carrying on the faith of Abraham. They didn't see themselves as starting up anything new. It was an understanding that their long-awaited Messiah had finally come in Jesus Christ. This was simply what God promised all the way back in the days of Abraham, and even hints of it in the early chapters of Genesis. And now it had come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So the persecution wasn't the battle of one religion over another religion. The persecution was the battle over the right interpretation of Scripture. Who was interpreting it correctly? Was Israel, in the traditional Mosaic way, interpreting it correctly? Or were these Jesus followers interpreting it correctly? For the people who rejected Jesus, they believed that the church was wrongly interpreting Scripture in light of Jesus. Uh, They believed that these people were making Jesus as a higher authoritative interpretive principle of Scripture than even Moses himself. And that is what Stephen is being charged for. 
He's not being charged for starting a new religion. He is being charged for distorting Israel's faith. And therefore, the charge is heresy. Something unorthodox, something against the faith. So it's a charge of heresy. They, as the section of scripture that I read, they were saying that he was speaking against the law of Moses. That Stephen was blaspheming God and Moses. That he was speaking against the temple and saying that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. He, they were saying, he was saying that Jesus will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Note, note how often in their argument against Stephen, they bring up Moses. Almost every other line. You are speaking against Moses. And because you're speaking against Moses, you're speaking against God. And because you're speaking against Moses and God, you're speaking against the temple. In other words, you're a heretic. And you are interpreting all of this stuff in light of this Jesus person who is dead, and yet you're claiming he's alive. They're saying that you cannot claim, Stephen, to be a follower of Moses and a follower of Jesus. If you just want Jesus, fine. But don't say that you're a follower of Moses and a follower of Jesus because you can't. They're also saying you can't claim to be a child of Abraham and a follower of Jesus. That's what they're accusing him of. That's when the high priest then asks Stephen, are these accusations true? And here is where if you don't understand story, if you don't understand that ultimately the scripture is a story, what Stephen does makes no sense. Because when they say, are these things true, Stephen doesn't say this. You see, there are four spiritual laws. God has a wonderful plan for your life, but all humanity is full of sin. But Jesus has made a way for us to be forgiven. So if we place our trust in Jesus, we will be forgiven. Now, if, if Stephen would have said that to all these Jewish leaders and authority figures before him, they would have looked at him and said, what? What does that have to do with Moses? What does that have to do with the temple? If that's what you believe, why don't you just go start your own religion and give it some kind of label and go off on your own. In fact, if that's what you believe, all you need is Genesis 1 and 3. Leave the rest of Scripture to us. You don't need the rest of the Old Testament because none of that relates to anything else. There were even some early church leaders like Marcion who pretty much adopted this position. He tried to approach Jesus and the Christian faith in a way that completely rejected the Old Testament. He said there was no need for the Old Testament. Correctly, the church rejected that position and said that the scriptures of the Jews, the Old Testament, is our scripture. Other movements, like the modern dispensational movement, are similar. They say that all of this Jewish stuff, like Moses and the temple, is for the Jews. It's not relevant for us Gentiles. See, God has two plans. He's got one plan for the Jews. He's got one plan for the Gentiles. And when the Gentile dispensation is over, then the Gentiles get raptured away, and then we go back to the Jewish way of doing things in light of Jesus. Other than to tell us that we're just really bad people and to give us a couple of morality stories, the Old Testament has absolutely no relevance to the church 
other than some people love to poke around in it as some kind of end times prophecy book. If we sum up the Christian faith in merely the four spiritual laws, we end up creating almost a different faith than how Paul and the New Testament writers understood the faith of the church. That God's only writing one story, and that that story, the Old Testament story, is not being put on pause with Jesus for the Gentile time period, but has reached its fulfillment in Christ, and we are now carrying on the same one big story, the story that God planned right from the beginning. He didn't change gears, change his minds. It's the same story. And that is Stephen's answer. Stephen's answer, when he was brought this accusation against him, said, let me tell you a story. And so they said, is this true? Are you speaking against Moses? Are you speaking against the temple? Are you speaking against the law? He says, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. Then God brought him here to the land where you are now to live. And then he goes on for like 60 more verses to just tell this story. He goes on to talk about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the Exodus and Joshua and the promised land and David and Solomon and the building of the temple. In other words, he retells Israel's story to answer the charge against him as to whether or not this Jesus-following faith is a different or a heretical faith from what the Jews have believed up to that point. Why does he tell a story? We have to ask ourselves this question. See, before I understood this in my younger years, whenever I got to this section in Acts, I thought Stephen was just stalling. See, I thought if Stephen would have said, um, you know, are all of these things true? If Stephen would have said, um, well, what you need to understand is Jesus is Lord. See, then they would have just killed him right away and that would have been the end of it. And so what Stephen was doing was buying time. And so they say, are these accusations true? And he says, let me tell you a story. Remember Abraham, he's our father and all this. And everybody would be like, yeah, that's a good story. He tells a story. And then he goes on to Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph. And then he's buying time. And maybe in the buying time, he's thinking, you know, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to grow around to this? Or maybe I can soften them up a little bit so that by the time I get to Jesus, they're not as angry. That's all I thought he was doing. To me, the whole chapter 7 of Acts didn't make sense strategically as to what Stephen was doing. Why are you telling them all this? See, I had little understanding of the grand story. I had even less understanding of what the grand story even meant. Even if it was eventually able to be put together, I didn't know what it all meant. I didn't know how it all worked together. And so, it seemed like nothing connected. In fact, George Bernard Shaw, the, the Irish playwright, who was an agnostic, uh, commented on this section in Acts this way. He says, a quite intolerable young speaker named Stephen delivered a speech to the council in which he inflicted them 
with a tedious sketch of the history of Israel, with which they were presumably as well acquainted as it as he was. And then he reviled them in the most insulting terms at the end by calling them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. Finally, after boring and annoying them to the utmost bearable extremity, he proclaims Jesus only to be thrown out of the city and stoned to death. It was a severe way of suppressing a tactless and conceited bore, but it was pardonably and human in comparison to God's slaughter of poor Ananias and Sapphira. Now, you can see a lot of the cynicism of George Bernard Shaw coming through there, and we probably would feel uncomfortable speaking of the story in that way because we feel we shouldn't ever speak about Scripture that way. But if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us approach the story and we find it extremely boring ourselves. What's the point? What does it all mean? And how does it address the attacks against Stephen? Remember, the attack is he's speaking against Moses and the temple and ultimately God. But Stephen is answering their question with the best possible answer that can be given. He's saying, listen, God has been writing a story. And that Jesus that I'm talking about is part of this story. In fact, Jesus has been part of the story all along. In fact, Jesus is the climax of the story. And we don't really get to know Jesus properly if we don't know the story. We just make Jesus up into our own image of whoever we want Jesus to be. Either a 60s hippie or a Victorian gentleman. We create Jesus in our own image if we don't understand the Jesus of the story. This story that God's been writing, this story that you are so familiar about, this story is God's story that is all about Jesus and leads to Jesus. And so all of the parts of the story link together in him. The followers of Jesus are simply the ones who are continuing on God's story. The promise that God gave to Abraham, the promise that God gave to Moses and David, the promise that was seen through the temple and the land is fulfilled and being fulfilled in Jesus. It's not Stephen who's getting the story wrong. It's those who are rejecting Jesus who are getting the story wrong. And this is the point where, in the most descriptive way, Stephen challenges his listeners with terms, when we understand them, that are not just insulting, but they're theologically loaded. After he tells this story, he calls his accusers uncircumcised. Now, his accusers are all Jewish leaders. So on a literal level, this is a ridiculous statement. Every guy there was circumcised. All they had to do was look down their pants and, if they wanted to, show Stephen and to say, what do you mean uncircumcised? Every one of us are circumcised. What are you talking about? But see, Stephen in this 
way he uses this term is the same thing that he's wanting to say and is going to say about the land and about the temple and about everything else. And that is, Stephen is essentially saying, don't think that just because your foreskin has been cut off, you are truly circumcised children of Abraham. Don't think that just because you have a temple, don't think that just because you have Moses' law, this makes you a follower of Moses. Like your forefathers, he's saying, you've gotten lost by staring at the signs as ends in themselves instead of staring at who the signs point to. It never was about circumcision, about the temple, about the law. It was how these things tell the story and what they're pointed to. It's kind of like, I don't know how many of you have a dog, but when you try to tell your dog to look at something, and you point to it, and you, and you say to your, your dog, like Fluffy or whatever, Fluffy, look over there, look over there, and the dog looks at your finger. And, and you're like, no, 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 Fluffy, there, look over there. And he keeps staring at your finger. No, don't look at my finger, look over there. That's essentially what Stephen's saying. He's saying, you guys are looking at the finger, not at what the finger's pointing to. And this is where you have gone wrong. All of these things, the temple, circumcision, it's not about that being the end. And when you make that the end, when you say, well, I'm part of Abraham's family, I'm circumcised, what Stephen is saying is, no, if you don't see who the circumcision is pointing to, you're not really circumcised. Because it's not the literal cutting of the flesh that makes you part of the family. George Bernard's uh, Shaw's assessment of how Stephen would have been perceived shows a great ignorance for the power of story, which I find very ironic because George Bernard Shaw was a playwright. You see, to say that they would have been bored by hearing their story again shows great ignorance to the power of the story that any mother or father knows who reads bedtime stories to their kids. Because what kids want is the story that they love again and again and again. And you may even tire of it. And you may even say to your son or daughter, look, look, honey, I brought a new story tonight. No, 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 no. I want that story that you read to me the night before, the night before, the night before. They don't get tired of it. They want it again and again. And so did Israel. When you read through Israel's scripture, what we call the Old Testament, her story is told again and again and again. You go in the Psalms, so many of the Psalms are just retelling the story. The, the, the Old Testament is full of these genealogies, and we go, wow, genealogies. But see, they found that rich. It's retelling their story. Abraham's children don't get tired of hearing their story. Stephen wasn't killed because he bored his audience. He was killed because his accusers understood the power of story and they were threatened by the way he was interpreting their story. And they refused to accept the way that Stephen was interpreting their story. See, we all live out of a narrative. We're all influenced by stories. It might be stories from sitcoms or commercials or reality TV, or Instagram, or celebrity magazines, hockey stars, rock stars, the goal to be number one dad, or employee of the month, or a gold star member, or even Star Wars. 
they become our stories. But Stephen is calling us to join a better story. He's saying there is a better story that you can live for. It's the ultimate, grand, epic, cosmic story. The one that Paul in Galatians 3.14 says that through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles. And now hear what he's going to say next. God has blessed the Gentiles through Christ Jesus with the same blessing he promised Abraham. It's not two blessings. There's not a Jewish blessing and then a Gentile blessing. Through Jesus Christ, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Which means then that Israel's story is our story, which means then that things like circumcision, things like the temple, things like the law of Moses, like Mo, all those things like that have something to say to us today because it's part of our story. And if we don't know the story, we will have no idea of what this all means. We will have no idea what it means for the Gentiles to have the same blessing God promised to Abraham. And if we don't understand what that same blessing is, we have a very superficial faith. If, 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 if we don't understand the grand story, it limits so much of our ability to understand of what it means to be Christians and God's ambassadors, part of his story for the resurrection of Ourselves and the cosmos. It limits us to a point where sometimes our faith becomes unrecognizable to the faith that Paul preached and that Stephen preached. And so what we're going to be doing, because this is a grand story over the next two weeks, is we're going to spend the next two weeks in chapter 7 looking at the grand story and it can be looked at like a diamond from seven to several different perspectives we're going to look at it from two what does Stephen say about the promised land and what does Stephen say about the temple if we look at Israel's story and what God has to say about the land that he promised to Israel, what does that, in light of the grand story, say to us today as followers of Jesus? Because it's part of our story. In the same way, what's up with the temple? It keeps coming up throughout the story too. What does the temple, how does understanding the temple in tabernacle, in light of the grand story, what does that say to us about God and what God has done and what God has promised to us and what it means for us as Christians? Because there's profound implications both in regards to the temple and the land that are part of our blessing today as followers of Jesus. Discipleship is about joining God's story and then learning to live in that story. That we are part of a story, and the story is the whole scripture. And as this is precisely our mission at Bethany, you've noticed as you walked in, you saw the big sign that said the story. One of the things that we have done is we've 
changed the wording of our tagline to our mission statement at the church. The mission statement is still the same about glorifying God by reaching out cross-culturally, winning, equipping, and discipling people um, into Jesus Christ. But our tagline, we are now saying that what you'll see in the front of the bulletin is that we are a church discipling people into a new story. That's what we're about. So you can grab one of our new mugs and it has that tagline on it. But, but a summary of that mission statement is, is what we are doing here, what our mission is, is helping unbelievers become believers and helping believers as well grow in their faith by discipling them into a new story. And that is God's story. Recognizing that everybody has a story, everybody lives some kind of story, and we're calling people to join the one true ultimate story. As we join the Holy Spirit in helping the church reclaim her story. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks unpacking chapter 7 some more as we look at some of the particulars in the story and see how that theme links together from beginning to end and what it tells us as Christians as we join God's people, Abraham, in his story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us and creating us in your image. We are not just like the cows or the sheep or the dogs or cats or any other animal. Though those are special and, and created by you. But we were created in a unique way. We were created to actually join you in the story that you have for your creation and to be your ambassadors and to be your stewards in bringing about the fulfillment that you have for your creation. And we pray, God, that as we continue to enter your story, soak in the scripture story, that that story will be something that we live out. In Jesus' name, amen.